Father, for many of us who gathered in this place on Friday, it was a night of darkness. It was a night of sadness. It was a night of weightiness as we contemplated the gruesome crucifixion of your son, Jesus. As we thought about that blood that was shed, flesh that was ripped open, the mockery, the insults. God, we felt the weightiness of it. And just as the disciples and those who followed Jesus all that Friday and all that Saturday had in their minds and hearts wondered what it was all about, who did not know exactly what would come, their hopes were dashed. They were discouraged, despairing. And God, we know that on the dawn of the third day, that Sunday, everything changed. We know that those women who approached the tomb, who saw that it was empty, encountering the angel, and then eventually encountering Jesus, from that moment on, everything changed. You did exactly what you said you would do. You came to earth out of love to live for us, to die for us, and on the third day, rise for us. And in so doing, you have secured for all time the saving benefits that Christ has purchased. And you are now inviting all to believe in order to receive these saving benefits, to be enveloped in your love, to experience what it is to be made new again. And so, Father, we've gathered in this place for that very reason. This is Resurrection Sunday. It's a day for us to reflect on how the darkness of Friday gave way to the light of Sunday. And in the resurrection of Jesus, now we have life. So, Father, I pray that you would illumine our minds. I pray, God, that you would fill our hearts with the affections that are so needed to adequately express the thanks that we have in our hearts for what you've done for us. So, God, grant us today the ability to behold your glory, to experience your love, and to remember anew what you have done on our behalf. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, good morning, church. It's good to see you all. And indeed, this is Resurrection Sunday. If we haven't had opportunity to meet, I want to introduce myself. My name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors here at Golden Hills. I do want to welcome those of you who are visiting, perhaps, either because your family members told you if you're going to stay at our house this weekend, you have to come to church. Or if you came on your own accord and all that kind of good stuff, I do want to say welcome, and we're so glad that you're here. We're going to uh, jump right into the book of Romans on this Resurrection Sunday, and we're going to see how the Lord Jesus has been risen from the dead and how we, by faith, can also be resurrected in a resurrection like his, and the resurrection that we are raised with is one of inseparable love. We're going to look in Romans chapter 8, verses 32 through 39, and then uh, I'll spend some time explaining it as we celebrate what God has done for us on this Resurrection Sunday. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love this text. And one of the reasons why I love this text so much is because the Apostle Paul is writing to a church in Rome who is battling and experiencing so much persecution, tribulation, hardships, circumstances that are so difficult to deal with. And in light of those kinds of circumstances, what he does is writes this whole book, but in particular this, this section, to fortify people's hearts, to encourage them that as bad as it is, you don't have to give in. You can be strong. You see, I imagine that these people in Rome at this particular time, they looked at the world around them and they probably asked themselves the question and the same question that you and I often ask ourselves, why is this world so broken? And when we look at the world we live in and the world around us, we oftentimes can potentially think to ourselves, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Because we all want something better than what we see. We all want a better world. And when we look around this world, we see it's not good. It's interesting that not only in a serious matter like the world around us, filled with all kinds of evils and injustices and sinful things, we ask ourselves the question, why is the world this way? And we, we contemplate this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And you probably felt that way. Maybe not in a serious kind of contemplative way, but in less serious ways. Like, for instance, you bought that little piece of furniture from Ikea. You brought that baby home, and you're looking at the instructions. You're putting that thing together. And next thing you know is that bookshelf's got a tilt. And you're like, it didn't look like that in the store. This is not the way it's supposed to be. I recently got gifted this uh, wooden rocking chair that's an outdoor rocking chair for me to sit in. And uh, the instructions were very clear, very elaborate. There was three steps. Place piece A and piece B secure. Step two was place C and D secure and place E and F secure. And I'm looking at this going, okay, I don't even know where A, B, C, or D is, and I don't know how to secure it. And so I put it together the best I could. And next thing you know, I'm looking at this rocking chair and like the right arm is lower than the left arm and it doesn't quite rock exactly. It kind of like shakes. <laughs> and I'm thinking this, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And I knew that wasn't the way it's supposed to be for two reasons. One is I've seen rocking chairs before and I've actually sat in one and I know how they're supposed to work. And this one, it ain't it. And then secondly, the, the cardboard box that this wooden uh, rocking chair came in, it had a picture on the front, 
And the manufacturer helped me understand what it's supposed to look like by showing me a picture of a very happy person sitting in their rocking chair, which in the moment, that wasn't me. Now, on a more serious note, I think most of us who live in this world, at times, we can honestly say that as we perceive and experience the world around us, this isn't how it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be this way that parents outlive their children. It's not supposed to be this way where there are people starving to death. It's not supposed to be this way that there are shootings in subways. And we look at the world and we go, something's wrong. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And if you think about it, as you contemplate the reality that the world is not the way it's supposed to be, you have this sense that something's off. For many people, if they're truly honest, they may go to the next step, and they'll say, this broken world we live in with all of these evils and injustices, how could anyone expect me to experience the love of God in a world like this? And many people do conclude that given the world we live in today with all of its evils and injustices and sins, certainly there can't be a God who loves us. On this Resurrection Sunday, I want to show how the resurrection of Jesus gives us assurance of God's love, even in the midst of the hardships that we experience in life. And here's what I'm pretty sure about. Regardless of your spiritual or religious background of you who've gathered here, I'm pretty sure you want Jesus' resurrection to be true, even if you don't believe it is. Because you, like me and like many of us, you've seen the world around us, and you recognize that, man, this is not the way it should be. I just feel like something's off. And deep down, what you really are longing for is you're longing for a world that's free of that stuff, free of starvation, free of murder, free of war, free of sorrow, free of disease. You want that. And if you're honest and you're like, nah, I don't really want that world. I like this world we have. I like death. We all would go, you need more counseling. <laughs> no matter your religious or spiritual background, you want to live in a world which is truly and perfectly good. Now, I knew my rocking chair was broke down and not the way it was supposed to be for two reasons. One is I had experienced a real rocking chair that was good. And secondly, the manufacturer gave me a picture of what I should expect. And so my question for us is, how in the world did any of us get the notion in our minds and hearts that the world is broken in the first place? The only way for us to know that this world is broken is if first we've ever experienced an unbroken world. And you and I have never experienced that. But we have experienced glimpses of it. And a second way that we could probably know that this world is broken and not the way it's supposed to be is if our maker has given us a picture of what the world is supposed to be. And that's what I would conclude is that God indeed, as our maker, who we are made in his image, 
He has left for us, as faint as it may be, a residual notion in our minds and hearts of a world which is totally and perfectly good. The echoes of Eden are still reverberating even today. And so, the only way for that new and perfect world to come into existence, God said he had to make things new again. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, in the scriptures, called the first fruits of the new creation, which means Jesus' resurrection is the first step in God's grand renewal project of renewing, redeeming, and reconciling all things to make them good again. In other words, even if you don't believe in Jesus today, that he rose from the dead, you want it to be true. You want so desperately for this broken world to no longer be broken. You want all these injustices to be redressed. You want there no longer to be death, no longer to be sorrow. And that, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus Christ has promised to do. And the evidence of his promise is that he has risen from the dead. And friends, even if you don't believe it, and you want to believe it, let me encourage you. As broken as this world is, it's not supposed to be this way. But because Jesus has risen from the dead, it won't always be this way. There's coming a day where all things will be made new again. So I want to begin by going into Romans chapter 8, and I'm not going to do what I typically do. For those of you who've heard me preach a lot, we go verse by verse through the text. I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to, I'm going to break down the logic of this and kind of show how the Apostle Paul is making a point to encourage people in the midst of hardships how they can be secured and comforted and reassured that as hard as life is, God loves you. And so I want to start with this. I want to start with the reality check, and I want to be honest about the world we live in. Some people think that Christianity is like this thing that you do. It's a crutch to help you get through life, and all you do is put a fake smile on, yay, and everything's happy, and you just pretend as though nothing bad is happening. That is not Christianity. Christianity is soberingly honest and real. Death is everywhere. Chaos everywhere, injustices everywhere, and we should weep, not ignore these things. We should be filled with sorrow and tears. And that's exactly how the Bible describes this world, is it is broken, and there is much weeping and sorrow. But it hasn't always been that way. In fact, when you open up in the Bible, what you see in the opening verses is this. That God created everything, the heavens and the earth, and everything in between. And everything that God created, from animals to people to trees to seahorses, I don't know, it just came to my mind. God saw everything that He made, and look, behold, it was very good. There was no sin, there was no injustices, there was no death. Everything was good. But that is not the world we experience today. 
Today, we experience a world that is very much not good. There's corruption everywhere, death everywhere. And how did it get that way? And the Bible is real clear in Romans chapter 8 that the creation, all that God created, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And that is a reference to Adam, who represented all of humanity, he and his wife Eve, in the Garden of Eden. And all they had to do was obey and trust God in everything, and there would be great reward, and they couldn't, and they didn't. And because of their disobedience and sin, they plunged not only themselves, but the entirety of the created world into distortion, corruption, and chaos. And I know that sounds like a mythical explanation, but I don't know of a better one. The creation itself... The creation itself is hopeful that it will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The natural world is quaking and quivering because of the corruption it experiences. And what's beautiful is the promise of God is simply this, that Jesus is the first fruit of resurrection. We who believe in Jesus will come secondly, like his resurrection, we will have a resurrection. And then following him and us is the whole natural world is to be resurrected, renewed and restored to its beautiful, true and good status. Today. When I use the word sin, it's virtually meaningless. But the way the Bible uses the word sin is to describe why the world is the way it is. Today, it's virtually meaningless for me to use the word sin because it's used as an adjective for like desserts. I don't know if you've seen this before, but it's like this chocolate cake is sinfully delicious. <laughs> You're like, well, if eating this is wrong, I don't want to be right. It's like, I got to whoop this. But sin also, by many people, is just termed, you know, a chaos, uh, an archaic word. We should get over it. Let's not use that word. I mean, like, we've evolved out of that. It's, it's 2022, after all, which I don't even know. That's not even an argument. It's just a statement. But anyways, it, it's sin, and many of us just shrug it off. Nah, that doesn't mean anything. But I think a biblical understanding of sin is incredibly helpful to make sense of the world we live in. A biblical understanding of sin, yes, is lawlessness, which means that we don't obey God. That's first and foremost. But a second understanding of sin is that it is parasitical. It's a parasite. Hopefully you know what a parasite is. A parasite is something that can only have life because it gets its life from a host. So you have a thing which is full of brimming of life, and a parasite attaches itself to this host and derives life from its host. Which means, on its own, apart from a host, it has no life. It's not a thing. So think of like darkness. Darkness is a parasite. Which means you only know the degrees of darkness because you first understand the host, which is called light. There's no such thing as darkness. If there was such thing as darkness, then if we killed the lights in here and we wanted to make it brighter again, 
then all I would say is, hey, everyone, can you remove the darkness? Now, how exactly do you remove darkness? By adding light. Because light is a thing. Darkness is the absence of a thing. Likewise, sin is not a thing. It's the absence of a thing. It's a parasite. And what I mean by that can best be explained by this guy named Cornelius Plantinga Jr., who's a, um, he's a philosopher. He's, he says this, sin is a parasite that attaches itself to that which is good and wholesome. It attaches itself to intention, memory, thoughts, speech, and intelligent action. And it transforms these things into weapons. He gives two examples. First, the same rigorous scientific method can be used to conquer a disease, and it also can be used to sell to terrorists. A second example is you can use uh, sound procedures of argument to establish true beliefs and important moral principles, but you can also use them to attack and undermine their influence on people's lives. Another way to say it is the same sun that melts wax can also harden clay. And so, in the world we live in, filled with all kinds of sin and evil, we have to realize the world that we live in, filled with all these things, is only the way it is because there was first a good, true, and beautiful world that sin parasitically attached itself to and is now sucking life from. Let me give you three real-life examples. Murder. Murder is sin only because you and I know first what it means to have life. You can't murder dead things. Only living things can be murdered, which means life precedes murder. Another example, this one's hard, is rape. Rape is sin only because we understand the goodness of self-giving sex that God has given in a marriage. If it wasn't for God's giving us the goodness of self-giving sex, we wouldn't understand the concept of rape. Lying. Lying is sin only because we first understand and know truth. Truth precedes lies. And you can only know a lie if you first know the truth. So when I go back to my rocking chair concept, the only reason I know that this rocking chair is broke down and ain't right is because in my mind I have a concept of a right rocking chair by experience and because of the picture on the box. My question to you all is, as you look at the world around you and you conclude something's wrong and this is not the way it's supposed to be, where did you get that notion? And the only way for you to know that this world is corrupt is if first you have an understanding of what it means to live in a good, true, and beautiful world. That's first. And of course, we ask the question, where do you get that idea from? And I would say it's from God.
because we're made in his image, he gives us in our hearts and minds the concept of a good and perfect and true world. And by that gift, we look at the world and go, this world doesn't add up to that. Now, if we're being honest about the world we live in, not only is it broke down and all this kind of stuff, but the Apostle Paul, when we go to Romans chapter 8, he does not shy away from the things we experience in our lives. I love this. For instance, we're going to look in verse 33, in the beginning of verse 34. In verse 33, the Apostle Paul asks this question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The question here is really a question of accusation. Paul basically is asking the question, who is it that is going to accuse us of being whatever it is we're accused of. And the reality is that all of us have experienced this in one form or another. Many of us fear being accused. You may fear being accused of the wrong stuff you know you did. You're like, I just don't, I know I did it, but I just don't want people to know. But even greater fear is this. I don't want you to accuse me of something I didn't do. We hate that. You said I did what? Oh, and you just get all riled up. But not only do we fear accusations from other people that we are maybe wrong or we fail, but sometimes we receive accusations from neighbors, from coaches, from teachers, from parents, and they accuse us of not being enough. You're not good enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not strong enough. You're not fast enough. You don't have a good enough work ethic. You don't have enough stuff. You don't have what it takes. And when these accusations come into our minds and hearts and they compile one upon another, then all of a sudden you have felt this before. More than likely, you have felt the overwhelming, crushing sensation of shame. And when you feel that crushing sensation of shame, you feel utterly condemned. I am terrible. I am the worst. And it paralyzes us. And so the Apostle Paul asks this question in verse 34, who is to condemn? Now, the reason why he asks who should accuse us or who should condemn us is because he wants to identify with us, making sure we understand that he understands this world is filled with accusations and condemnations. You and I are guilty of sin. There's no doubt about that. If, if you doubt that, uh, ask somebody sitting next to you. They'll help you out. They'll let you know about how sinful you are. We're condemned because we are sinful. We know this. It paralyzes us. We know our, agree, our, our, we know our sin is, is great. We've been accused of it. We accuse ourselves of it. But Paul goes on and he also talks about other circumstances that we may experience in life which could cause us to feel fearful or anxious. He goes on in verse 35. We'll skip the first little question. We'll come back to it. He talks about tribulation, which is suffering or trouble. He talks about distress, which is anxiety or worry. He mentions persecution, which is obviously experiencing hostility or ill treatment because of certain beliefs. He talks about famine and nakedness. He talks about danger and about the sword or the fear of death and war. And I think all of us in this room can, in some way, shape, or form, relate to these anxiety-producing and fear-inducing circumstances. 
We sometimes worry about war. We sometimes worry about where we're going to be able to pay for our groceries, how we're going to come up with the money. We get fearful at the threat of tribulation. We get fearful that there is persecution coming our way. And I love being realistic about this. This is the world we live in. We live in a world filled with accusations, condemnations, and all kinds of troubling things. That's the world we live in. Now, what's interesting, I think, is how the Apostle Paul helps us understand not just the, real, the, the reality of these things, but the reality of what God, what God wants us to know about them. Namely, he gets it. He sees us. He's not aloof. And if we're being honest, we're being realistic about the things that we've just talked about, I think some people could eventually make the conclusion, given the world we live in, how in the world could God possibly love us? Given my circumstances, how could anyone expect me to experience the love of God with all the stuff I got to deal with? But the claim is that God does indeed love us. If you look in verse 35, 37, and 39, Paul mentions love, the love of Christ, which means Jesus loving us in verse 35. In verse 37, he talks about how Jesus is the one who loved us. And then he makes this claim in verse 39 that there is a love of God that is experienced in the person of Christ Jesus our Lord. So three separate times, Paul says, no, 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 God does love you. And yet we live in a world filled with all kinds of circumstances that would suggest to us, maybe he doesn't. I mean, look at this. There are so many circumstances that make it seem that God doesn't love us. And so now what I want to do is transition into seeing what God has done and what God is doing. Because God is not idle and God is not indifferent towards these things. And we start in verse 32. Where the Apostle Paul writes this, he being God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, this may not mean anything to us as we read this verse, but look at the first half. He who did not spare his own son. The significance of this is amazing because Jesus, who is the Son of God, is not just some dude, he's not your homeboy. In fact, when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and a voice spoke out and all the people who gathered there heard it. And here's what God the Father says of God the Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. In other words, when I look at Jesus, God the Father said, there's a smile on my face, joy in my heart. I love him. He's everything to me. God so treasures Jesus. It's the most joyous thing to God the Father is to behold God the Son. And now go back to verse 32. And even though Jesus is the most precious treasure, God did not spare him, but gave him up for us all. 
In other words, God saw our predicament that we are wretchedly sinful, that we deserve hell to be punished because of our sin. And the most desperate need that all of us have right now is to be forgiven of that sin. And in order to be forgiven of that sin, God the Father has given us God the Son to die for us in order to forgive us. Let me put it differently. God gave us what we needed most at the cost of what he treasured most. And think about this. If the most important and precious thing that God has, he is willing to relinquish it for you, don't you think he'll come through for you if you need some clothes? Because Jesus is way more important than clothes. Jesus is way more valuable than food. Jesus is way more valuable than anything else. So when all your stuff is being ripped from you and taken from you, take heart. If God, being so gracious and generous, gave us the most precious thing in the world, don't you think he'll come through for you with things which are less valuable? Oh, he'll come through. That's why he says, will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? That's what God has done. Now, I want you to think about these accusations and these condemnations that you and I often feel. Let's go back to verse 33 and 34, that there's people who are leveraging these charges against us, God's people, and they will condemn us, and we will feel condemned. We will self-condemn. We will self-accuse and all this kind of stuff. Now, I love verse 31. I didn't read this, but I want to call, call your attention to it. Well, the Apostle Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? And here's an amazing question. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who could be against us? You see, you and I experience a lot of opinions of other people. And they will accuse us and condemn us. And sometimes we'll accuse ourselves and condemn ourselves justly at times, unjustly at other times. We will know that we are not enough and people will remind us of it and they'll remind us of our weaknesses and then all the day long we're just experiencing one accusation after another and we feel condemned, we feel slayed by our shame, guilt burdens us and we are paralyzed by it and we hate it. And we do all kinds of things to get out from underneath it. Just come home at the end of the day, drink a beer, get some wine, watch some Netflix until it all goes away. But then you wake up and it all starts back again. And I love how the Bible is so clear about this. We have a chief accuser who is our chief enemy. The apostle John says, they hear a loud, loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. There is an accuser whose name is Satan who accuses the people of God day and night. Day and night. Many of you know that. And some of us, Satan uses our own mouths to accuse brothers and sisters. And day and night, condemnation, accusation, 
And yet we are reminded that these believers, that they have conquered the accuser, the great enemy. And how have they conquered? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, because they love not their lives even unto death. Your neighbor, your coach, your family member, a coworker, a boss, they do not have the most final and authoritative opinion of who you are. That right is reserved for God and God alone. So what God says about you is what is finally and authoritatively true. So that every accusation leveled against you, every condemnation leveled against you from anyone else, including yourself, which does not align with the reality of what God has revealed, it is not true. And so we jump down to Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who shall accuse God's people? And then these beautiful words, it is God who justifies. God is the one who makes the final determination of who we are and what our value is. God is the one who gives us our worth and value. God is the one who definitively, finally, and authoritatively says, this is who you are, and everything else doesn't matter. And so we are embraced by God, and he protects us. And so the flaming darts of accusations that fling against us repel off of us because we are surrounded by a God who says, this one's mine. Don't you come near. Now, these kinds of promises that God is for you, not against you, that God will protect you, that God will justify you, these are not promises that are for everyone. They are only for those who believe. Because I have to speak clearly today, given in a room like this, where there's likely some folks who don't believe, I don't want you to deceive yourself into thinking, oh, this stuff's for me, sweet. And then you go about your merry way, living your life no differently. The Bible's very clear that this lack of condemnation and lack of accusations and this justification are reserved for a certain people. Where Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation. And who are these certain people? It's only for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, since we, those who are in Christ Jesus, have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I put these two verses together, it would sound something like this. Only those who are justified by faith can have peace with God and no longer stand condemned or accused. And those who have faith in Jesus, who was given for us, that we may be forgiven of our sins, we can confidently say that God is for us and he is not against us. But if you do not believe in Jesus, then the condemnation remains, the accusations are still there, and not only is the whole world against you, but God himself is against you as well. And that's why it's important to believe. You've got to believe. Verse 34 and 35, the Apostle Paul is gonna help us understand the, the reason why we should believe, the incentive behind it, and why there's no longer a reason to live in fear of accusations and condemnation. He shows why people can be assured of God's love. 
Even though you and I experience circumstances which are difficult and hard, which God sees and understands, the Apostle Paul is going to give us some input into how we can continue to experience the love of God in spite of the difficulties that we experience. Here's verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and I love this, more than that, who was raised. I I love that because Paul's like, I know Jesus died for you, isn't that great? And you're like, yes, it's great, but this is better. Christ died on the cross, but the empty tomb, ah! It's so much more. Because the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're all still in our sins. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then there's no forgiveness. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there's no life after death. But he has. Therefore, there is life. Therefore, there is forgiveness. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. And it goes on to say, not only did Jesus die for us, not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but he's also at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And I love this. I love the movement that Jesus lived, and Jesus died, and then Jesus rose, and then Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, who is interceding for us. I don't know if that that stirs you, but just think about Jesus being enthroned in heaven and he continually, moment by moment, day by day, is appealing for you, is going to bat for you, and he is for you. So Satan accuses day by day, but Jesus is whooping on Satan day by day. So we have this interceder who never slumbers, never sleeps, always reigns, exalted on high, that no power exceeds, no authority surpasses, who is always for us, interceding for us, wanting the best for us, always. Holy smokes, you got to be kidding me. And yet we can't negate the fact that it's hard. Life is hard. You see, Paul goes on this crescendo of how Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Jesus intercedes for us, those who believe. And then he asks this question, which I think is a really good question because he understands his audience like I'm trying to help you understand that God sees and God knows. Because in the midst of such hardships and circumstances that are difficult, it's easy for us to question the love of God. God, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Where are you? And so he asked this question, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? I know it's hard, and it seems like God doesn't love you, and it seems like these things are proof he doesn't love you. But let me ask you, what actually can separate you from the love of God? Can all these things separate you from the love of God? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Verse 37. Nope. Uh Uh-uh. How is that possible? Well, because in all these things, all these circumstances, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
We are more than conquerors through Jesus who loves us. How do we know he loves us? Because he lived for us, he died for us, he rose for us, and he intercedes for us. A conqueror, what does that mean? A conqueror is one who overcomes things, who overcomes enemies. And so what Paul says is that we are more than conquerors, which means if we were just conquerors, that means we would be people who overcome the things in life that threaten to separate us from God's love. Like we can, you know, we can not give in uh, to life circumstances. We won't get down too much. We're conquerors. You can overcome. But that's not what Paul says. He actually says, no, 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 you're more than that. Wait, more than that? I'm more than someone who can just not get down because of my circumstances? Yeah. Wait, what? So what in the world does it mean to be more than a conqueror? That's a great question. I'm, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Pastor John Piper, he writes this. One biblical answer to the question, what does it mean to be more than a conqueror, is that a conqueror defeats his enemies, but one who is more than a conqueror subjugates his enemies. You see, a conqueror nullifies the purpose of his enemy, but one who is more than a conqueror makes the enemy serve his own purposes. A conqueror strikes down his enemy, but one who is more than a conqueror will make his enemy his slave. Let me put it differently. When the enemy who Satan or anything else accuses, condemns, does all this kind of stuff and is plaguing you, boom, 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 some of it justified, some of it not. And you understand Jesus is interceding for you day by day. He's pulling for you. He's praying for you, these kinds of things. Then what we do is we also remember that we're more than conquerors. That these circumstances, these enemies perhaps, the purposes they have to destroy us and discourage us, we can not only overcome them, but also God has empowered us so that in these circumstances, they actually serve our purposes. Which means God will take the worst things of your life and turn them for your good. Satan may accuse, you may self-condemn, we may experience famine or war. We may have anxiety in this life. But when you are more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ who loves you, you don't merely resist or overcome these things. Instead, these things will end up better serving you for good purposes. Now, that's amazing. And I often tell people when I encourage them in the midst of their hardships, remember, God is not doing this to you God is doing this for you. There is something God is going to work out. It may not be instantaneous because we're Americans. We want to microwave everything. This is hard. Make it good. God's like, I will make it good in 64 years. And you're like, oh, that's the worst. But how can this possibly be true that God will work for my good? How is that possibly true? Well, we know that for those who love God, because God has first loved us, for those who love God, those are believers, all things work together for good. 
Every bad, every famine, every distress, every nakedness, every threat is going to work together for good. But it's reserved for those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, for those who believe. This is not a blanket promise for all people. This is a promise, glorious promise for those who believe. God will ensure that these terrible things, difficult things, will work for your good. Let's keep going, verse 38. Paul says, I am sure. In other words, I am absolutely convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. I'm convinced nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. When God loves you, it is a love which cannot be separated. It is a love which cannot be retracted. How is this true? How can Paul be so sure of this, so confident? And I'm going to give you three reasons. One is this. Because God gave us his most beloved treasure to meet our most desperate need, and all this because he was motivated by his love, we can be assured that God loves us in any and every circumstance. Remember, It was because of love that God the Father sent God the Son into the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So how can I be sure? First answer, because Jesus came. He came. So God is not indifferent to your suffering. God doesn't turn a blind eye and go, oh, get over it, wuss. God looks at us, sees our pain, sees our suffering, And in love, sends his son, the most treasured son, into the world to alleviate the suffering, injustices, pain, and sorrows that you and I experience. Jesus has come. And he's come because he loves you. You can't undo Jesus' coming. Second reason that we can be assured of God's love is because Jesus died to show that his love for you is real. And he rose to confirm his love for you, and now he reigns as your interceder because he continues to love you. Remember, Jesus came, but he just didn't come to be a moral teacher. He came to be a atoning sacrifice. And what we read on Romans 5, 8, is that God has shown his love to us, that while we were still sinners, he died for us. So Jesus came because he loves you, and now we see he died because he loves you. Romans 4, 25, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And because he loves you, he wants to justify you shield you from accusation and condemnation. He wants to liberate you from all those things that plague you, chiefly of which is the unforgiveness of your sins. 
How do I know Jesus loves me? How can I be so sure that his love will never escape from me? Because he died for me. More than that, he rose from me. And even more than that, right now, every day and all day, he intercedes for me. So he loved me from eternity past. He loved me in history. And he loves me forevermore. And none of those things can be undone. Jesus can't be undone in his coming. He can't be undone in his death or resurrection. And he can't be undone in his praying and interceding for us. It is finished. And the most powerful thing in the world that you and I fear most is death. None of us can conquer death. And it's usually the thing that causes us to question God's love most. And yet, how does God display his love most powerfully? By conquering the most powerful force that you and I are most fearful of. Not even death can keep me from loving you. I've risen. I'll never be separated from you. Give me some of that. And then the third reason is that we have to remember in all of our circumstances that ultimately God is going to work them for our good. I want you to see this. For those who love God, which is a response to God first loving us, all things, even famine, yes. Even war, yes. Even the loss of a child? Yes. God will work all these things together for good. I don't know how, I don't know when, but I know for certain he will. Why? Because he loves you. And he wants to make sure everything in your life will be oriented to your good and his glory. I want to call your attention to the Old Testament, if you remember a dude named Joseph. You remember him? He had uh, 11 brothers, and uh, he was uh, an arrogant young man, always boasting about his dreams, wearing fancy coats, and uh, his brothers didn't like him for that. And they're like, man, let's get rid of this punk. And so they dug a giant hole, and they stuck their brother in a hole until some people came by, and then they decided, hey, let's sell our brother into slavery. And they did. And so their brother Joseph, sold into slavery, goes to Egypt. And one thing happens after another. And all kinds of things unravel in his life. He ends up in prison. But there's good news. There's a dude who's like, hey, man, you know, I'll help you out. I promise I'm going to get you out of here. And Joseph's like, yeah. And then year after year goes by. And the dude never comes back and gets him out of jail. Joseph's like, what's up, man? And eventually he gets out of jail. He rises to the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. In fact, he's so powerful, he has great gifts of administration and skills in planning and and stuff like that because of God's help, that he's able to secure a whole bunch of food to prevent people from dying in a very severe and strict famine. And eventually his brothers and his dad, the whole family comes to Egypt in order to get the food that they so desperately need because a famine has been so severe. And they're standing before Joseph, and they don't recognize him yet. 
And then finally he reveals himself to them and you can imagine what the experience of those brothers must have been. Yeah, we didn't like this clown. We sold him into slavery. We finally got rid of him. And now all of a sudden he goes, I'm Joseph. And they're like, oh no. <laughs> because you and I know exactly what we would do in that moment. We're getting revenge. And we would look at our brothers who sold us into slavery and we'd be like, oh man, you thought what you did to me was bad. Just wait till what's coming to you. And so they were fearful and they were, they were trembling because they thought for sure they're about to get it. They're about to die. And yet here's what we read in Genesis 50, where Joseph is talking to his brothers and he says to his brothers, you meant evil against me. You meant, which means you intended. That was the purpose of your actions was evil against me. And what is the evil he's referring to? being sold into slavery. That's evil, right? Right? Okay, I'll just check in. <laughs> and yet this horrific evil of slavery, which the brothers intended for Joseph, that was the purpose. Look at this next phrase. But God meant it for good. What is the it there? The it is being sold into slavery. And the word meant means God had intended for Joseph to be sold into slavery. That was God's purpose for Joseph. But the encouraging note is this. Yes, his brothers meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Because even the most heinous evil, slavery, God in his power and because of his love can somehow turn it for good. And the good that was brought about was that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's unbelievable what God is able to do and does do and will do. Which gives us our conclusion that nothing can separate God from the objects of his love. There is nothing, no circumstance will befall you which can ever separate you from the love of God because Jesus has come for you. He has died for you. More than that, he has raised for you and is interceding for you continuously. And he promises that whatever comes your way, because of his love for you, he's going to work it for your good and his glory. And then the best part of all, Jesus is called the first fruits of the new creation because his resurrection was the first of all the renewal that would take place in all the world. And we're told that by faith, we can become new creations along with Jesus. We become the objects of God's love by faith and that we can have hope in our hearts that one day we will rise with a resurrection like Jesus, all by faith. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 6, 5, if you've been united with Jesus in a death like his, that is, if you've confessed your sins and you've repented of your sins and you've believed in Jesus, that his death was for you, you're going to kill your old sinful self in a similar way that Jesus was killed. 
you need to also understand that we, by faith in Jesus, we shall be certainly, certainly united with him in a resurrection like his. One day, these mortal bodies, which are getting old and flabby, you young people, you're like, what? I'm cute still. We're getting old. Things are breaking down, distortion, corruption. But one day there's coming when Jesus returns and we arise with him. We will arise incorruptible and glorious. No more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death, no more disease. And the resurrection, brothers and sisters, that we will be raised into is a resurrection where we are raised into God's inseparable love. I know life is hard and God knows life is hard. But I'm here to proclaim and I hope you are encouraged. God, no matter your circumstances, will not relinquish his love for you. He has come for you, died for you, rose for you, and he's interceding for you. He will come back for you. And one day we will rise with him and be in this world that you always wanted to be true. And it is. That faint whisper, that echo of Eden. The world is not the way it's supposed to be, but I, but I think it should be better. It should be, and it will be. And for those of us who have faith, we will experience it forever and ever. And that's why Resurrection Sunday is so much better than Good Friday. So, Father, we do pray. We pray that you would encourage our hearts, those of us who have believed in Jesus, who now no longer stand condemned or accused, those of us who have been justified by the blood of Jesus, those who have hope in our hearts of a future resurrection where all things will be made new again, those of us who know that you have a love for us which is unconquerable, inseparable, and always abiding. God, encourage our hearts. May our affections for you swell. May they overflow. God, may it transform the way we live. And for all those who are gathered in this place who do not yet believe, God, I pray that you would save them. Show them your love. Show them how much you want them and you have come to show your desperate want of them. And I pray that they would believe. God, I pray. And in believing, Lord, confessing the sin and believing, God, may you fill them with the Spirit that they would be assured in their hearts that the love of God abides here and we will never be separated. Father, thank you as we close our service in song. Death has been defeated and we are now free. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.